Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 131 for the first half of May 2015. The topics I'm going to talk about today on clip show number three without any clips are a general catch-up, including a discussion of the blood moons, again, the Dawn spacecraft's lack of images of Ceres' bright spots, Messenger's death plunge into Mercury, and funding in science. The first topic for this episode is about the lunar eclipse last month, the third eclipse of this tetrad. I discussed this in an entire episode, number 85, but to refresh your memory on the terms I just used, a lunar eclipse these days has been scarily termed blood moon by the media for purposes of scaremongering because the moon will turn red, and also because they picked up on scary conspiracies promoted by two religious people in particular. A tetrad is a series of four, hence tet, lunar eclipses, and four total lunar eclipses, not partial, that occur six months apart. We get eclipses in six months apart intervals because of how celestial mechanics works, but it's relatively rare that we get four lunar eclipses that are total lunar eclipses in a row. This has become a thing recently when Mark Biltz found out that the tetrad that started in April 2014 has total eclipses that all happen on Jewish holidays, and then he retrodicted, cherry-picked, and fudged important events in Jewish history in order to claim that something bad is going to happen to Israel as signaled by this tetrad. There's really nothing new to report on the whole conspiracy and doomsday stuff other than political infighting over which pastor originated this idea, but something that I found particularly interesting is that the lunar eclipse last month, in April of 2015, may not have actually been a total lunar eclipse. This, of course, is being ignored by the prophecy people, but I think it's worth discussing because I personally found it actually pretty interesting and learned some stuff about it myself. First off, a lunar eclipse is when the moon goes into Earth's shadow cast by the sun, or cast from the sun. If you're on the moon and can still see part of the sun, then you're in a partial eclipse, and we would say that you are in Earth's penumbra, or penumbral shadow. If the entire sun is blocked from your location on the moon, then you are in Earth's umbra, or the umbral shadow. From Earth, parts of the moon that are in the umbral shadow look very, very dark red, while parts that are in the penumbral shadow will still look bright, over a factor of a thousand brighter than other parts that are in total eclipse, but still only about 10% as bright as when not eclipsed at all. Just like on Earth, when we get a solar eclipse, different parts of the moon will see different amounts of the sun at different times as the eclipse progresses. Unlike a solar eclipse on Earth, because Earth is so much larger than the moon, the entire lunar surface can be within Earth's umbra, and that's when we'll see a total lunar eclipse. The moon will appear various shades of red because the only light that reaches it is bent around Earth by Earth's atmosphere, which screens out shorter, bluer wavelengths of light. April 2015's total lunar eclipse was expected to be the shortest total lunar eclipse of the century, with only about five minutes spent by the entire moon in Earth's umbral shadow. What NASA and pretty much everybody else does when they make eclipse tables and their graphics and their movies in order to show what's going to happen, they assume Earth is a sphere. 
Therefore, when calculating Earth's shadow, extending to the moon, they assume that the shadow cast is a perfect circle, and that's how they get about five minutes in total eclipse, or totality. But Earth is not a perfect sphere. It's an oblate spheroid, somewhat pear-shaped, with uh, 21 kilometers or 13 miles difference between the polar and equatorial radius. It's also generally fatter in the southern hemisphere than the northern. And it also has topography variations as well. Those go between 4 kilometers below the polar radius to 7 kilometers above the equatorial radius. And the atmosphere is not perfectly spherical envelope or an envelope of uniform thickness. It can get inflated over warm areas and contract over cold areas. It can be extended by a particularly strong solar wind or various other things. What this all gets to is that the assumption of a sphere is wrong. It gets you really, really close to within about 0.3 to 0.4%. But when you're on that edge, such as predicting totality of only 5 minutes long, close enough might not be good enough. And with that tucked in the back of your mind, another generalization is that lunar eclipses are visible at the same time in the same amount from any location on Earth that can see the moon. That's not entirely correct either. As discussed in episode 124 on the distance ladder, there are parallax effects. Due to differences in where you are on the planet, you're going to see something slightly different. Again, this generalization usually works, and it is a minuscule effect that really no one's going to notice, except in cases when you're really close to that edge. So, when I got up at 2am and spent an hour getting all of my gear set up, and then three hours slowly watching the moon and photographing it as it approached the Colorado Rocky Mountains and finally get to totality, it never got to totality. There was a very small sliver that remained incredibly bright relative to the rest of the eclipsed moon. Surprisingly, although possibly because it was 7am when I finally got to bed, I didn't think much about it. I've seen total lunar eclipses with a significant gradient in brightness across the moon's surface, and somehow I just brushed that off. Then, about a week later, I saw a Universe Today article questioning whether the total eclipse was really a total eclipse, and it got to the points that I raised over the last five minutes or so. Then, I posted to the Facebook page for the podcast, and another listener posted one of his photos taken from California at the moment of greatest eclipse from his point of view. He showed a much smaller sliver than mine due to parallax, but he still never got true totality. And so, there are a few lessons from this. First is the science one. Physicists assume that cows are spherical. This is a concept made popular by Lawrence Krauss's book, Fear of Physics, but it holds true. Even when we know that reality is really complicated, we often use simpler models because they let us get really, really close to describing that reality, and so long as we recognize that they are simplifications and know when they break down and where they break down and that we can't use them, we get along fine. This was a case where the cow was not a sphere, or the earth was not a sphere. Second is the whole prophecy one. Clearly, since this was not a true total lunar eclipse, it's not a true tetrad occurring on Jewish holidays, and therefore God's thrown us a curveball, or a Hail Mary, if you will, and we're safe for another few decades or centuries. The second topic for this catch-up clip show is about the dwarf planet Ceres, and its mysterious bright spots. By way of a very brief history, Ceres has been observed by ground-based and space-based telescopes for many 
many years, and we have known that it has had at least a few of the areas that are much brighter than others. As the Dawn spacecraft approached Ceres in March of 2015 and inserted itself into orbit, over that period of time in the previous two months as it approached, it captured images of some of those bright spots, including to it roughly, gasp, 19.5 degrees north latitude. The internet was all a flutter and all a twitter about what those bright spots could possibly be, most scientific speculation being that they were caused by ice of some form. Then, Dawn went into a very wide, very slow orbit over the next many weeks and months, and it's going to be lowering that orbit into a survey orbit, and then it will lower it again into a stable, high-altitude mapping orbit, or HAMO, that begins in August of this year. This was planned for months, if not for over a year, because two of its reaction wheels that could keep the craft stable actually failed. Thus, not only could they not enter HAMO more quickly without risking the spacecraft, they also couldn't take nearly as many images on approach as planned, because that required turning the spacecraft and using fuel, and trying to use something to stabilize the craft. So, it was known many, many months ago, that we would get approach images, and then it would be over a month while Dawn was on the night side of Ceres, and it's very slow, very high orbit, and we would get zero new images. But, never let public mission plans stop a really good, or bad, conspiracy. With all the hype in the week or two leading up to orbit insertion about those bright spots, everyone on the conspiracy sites was wondering why we hadn't seen any new images. NASA and ESA must be hiding them. I also heard this discussed on several late-night radio programs that shall remain anonymous, as well as some podcasts. I mean, after all, how could it possibly have been over a month with nothing new? There was all this flutter, all this Twitter, all this Facebooking, all this stuff about these bright spots, and then absolutely nothing. There's really not much else to say about it at this point. I will state that during this time, the team worked very hard on calibrating other instruments, and so both the color approach images and the thermal map came out while Dawn was over the night side of Ceres. And because those were released at the time, that does not mean that they were collected during that time. The thermal and color data take a lot more work to properly calibrate than a basic black and white image. We have the same issues with the New Horizons spacecraft, and so it was just announced this past week that the black and white images will be released, and are being released, automatically to the public when we get them. But the other kinds of images and other kinds of data are not. Not helping this issue about the conspiracy was that just two weeks ago, NASA stupidly, in my opinion, launched a website that asked the public what they think the bright spots are. You could vote for a volcanic origin, geysers, rock, ice, salt deposits that actually look like a dog turd on the website, or other. You can probably hear some of the derision dripping from my voice. I think that this was a really stupid move for two reasons. First, it's the same thing that the International Astronomical Union did with Pluto in 2006, and it gives the impression that scientists vote on science. That's not true. We don't vote on science. Second, it gives a ridiculously free leg up to conspiracists who can further use it to say pretty much anything that they were already saying, but now apparently validated. For example, they can claim that it shows NASA doesn't know what's going on, so they're asking the public, but they refuse to consider aliens, which is what it really is. 
Or if it turns out that what gets the most votes is ends up being the scientific consensus down the road, then clearly NASA is just giving in to popular demand, and it's hiding the true nature of what these spots are. As a side note, if I were really a paid shill for NASA, would I really be talking about something that they did in this manner? Well, I wouldn't think so, but then again, I suppose I could have been told to say this, so it seems like I'm not a paid shill. And thus, we get the conspiracy mindset. Evidence for the conspiracy is, of course, evidence for the conspiracy. Evidence against the conspiracy is still evidence for the conspiracy. Speaking of spacecraft, in the news at the time that I'm releasing this episode is Messenger and its demise on the surface of Mercury. I haven't really seen any conspiracy related to this yet, and I have looked, but I expect that if there is one that develops, it will be along the line of the spacecraft. It's still active. It's just hidden now, and it's taken over by the secret space program for their own purposes. This is the basic claim that tends to follow the either timely or untimely demise of any spacecraft. Which is really kind of surprising, because in most conspiracy people's versions of the secret space program, they are far beyond the public space program in terms of technology. So they could just teleport to a place with people and do a heck of a lot more science than a NASA spacecraft could do. What's really gone on is the same thing that happened to Venus Express a few months ago. It ran out of fuel. Knowing this around a planet that doesn't have an extended atmosphere made it a lot easier to predict the orbit decay and time of the crash landing. You might be wondering, though, why you need fuel to maintain an orbit, since orbits are supposed to be stable. I'm glad that you're wondering, and a reader of the podcast wondered the same thing when I posted to Facebook about this on Thursday. As the non-listener nor reader James explained, it's a three-body problem because Mercury is so close to the Sun. The spacecraft was perturbed by the sun in its orbit around Mercury such that the sun was either constantly trying to either rip the craft from orbit or crash it to the surface. Therefore, the spacecraft needed to expend a lot of fuel to maintain its highly elliptical orbit. Messenger returned a lot of amazing data about a planet that we hadn't visited in nearly 40 years. Analysis has dramatically improved our understanding of Mercury, and it's going to continue to do so for many years to come. On a personal note, I used the data myself in two of my research projects, and the last bits up to the time of its demise should be released by the end of 2015, following the six-month proprietary data period that might be a little bit later depending on the specific schedule. The final topic for this episode's main segment is the follow-up from episode 126, the interview with Pamela Gay about funding in science. I neglected to do this follow-up in the last several episodes because I wanted the Comet Hale-Bopp series to be more standalone and not interrupted, and the last episode was an interview and I don't want to detract from the guest, which is why I really never do the extra segments during interview episodes. This segment was really triggered by an email that I got from a listener who had some pretty severe critiques about the content of the interview. One point raised was that Pamela implied that there has been a large reduction in non-defense-related research spending in the United States over the past few decades. He sent a graph produced by the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and it shows in 2014 dollars that this has not been the case. While there was a large increase in defense spending relative to other federal research during the Bush administration, the non-defense research declined only slightly, and it continued to decline under the Obama administration, although it is still actually above what it was in 2000. 
Another point the listener questioned is the trend of scientists leaving the U.S. due to poor funding here and for better funding elsewhere. I can't speak to this with any numbers. All I have are anecdotes, so I can neither back up the listener nor can I support what Pamela stated there with anything other than anecdotes. As Rebecca Watson stated many years ago in a particularly memorable quote, the plural of anecdote is not evidence. A third point raised was the focus on STEM education, or science, technology, engineering, and math. The listener stated, quote, If anything, we are focusing on it too much. Way too much. He then linked to an article in The Atlantic that I've put in the show notes. On this point, I disagree, and the article doesn't exactly support the listener's point. I think that we do need to focus on more of these science-y types of subjects if we want to stay or regain, depending on your point of view, our competitiveness on the world stage in science and technology and engineering and math. But I think that where some organizations go wrong is to A, emphasize it to the detriment of other necessary subjects, and B, emphasize it without knowing what they're doing, and so they do it in a very poor way. And I think that's what the Atlantic article was saying. By way of example on the latter point, I had a very fun job in the summer of 2002 when I was a mole. The institution that someone I knew worked at uh, had implemented a division just because other similar institutions had that kind of division. The person in charge had absolutely no idea what he was doing. There was no real point to the division either. It was just kind of there and did stuff because similar places had it. My job was to work there for three months and report back on the uselessness not only of the division, but of the leadership. And I did. The same thing goes for STEM in some places. Unless you actually have a purpose for doing it, and you know what you're doing, just saying, oh, hey, we we need to focus more on STEM, so everybody needs to take double math next year, it's just kind of stupid. By way of example for the first point, there are only so many hours in the school day, and there is only so long that children's attention spans will last. Therefore, if you cut out something like art or gym or history in favor of inserting a STEM-related class, then you are, by definition, getting rid of subjects that may be just as important, only not to STEM. For example, if you put as a 12th grade required class engineering principles, obviously STEM-related, and that replaces, say, a U.S. government class, then students graduating may be great at engineering basics, and they may want to pursue that as a career, but they won't have any idea how the U.S. political system works, which leads to its own problems that we have now. I think that this is an issue, but it's one better left to people who study education and societal trends rather than I, who just kind of run a podcast. I think that this is still an area that definitely has no good solution yet. But beyond the listener's feedback, I wanted to continue this discussion about funding from more personal experience. I need to state up front that I'm I'm not looking for pity or anything. I chose this career and the stress with finding funding that accompanies it. But I want to give you more context and a better understanding of what the United States planetary science community specifically faces. And the same thing is really generalizable to many areas of basic science research. Last year, there was a massive reorganization of the Omnibus NASA program that most of us get most of our funding from. It's called the Research Opportunities in Space and Earth Sciences, or ROSES for short. ROSES is everything except for institutes and missions. If you want to analyze spacecraft data, that's ROSES. 
study the sun, stars, galaxies, that's roses. Within the planetary section, which is Appendix C, as I said, there was a massive reorganization, which usually means they're trying to combine programs to hide that they have less money, which was also the case. Roses C now includes four core programs, plus several very specific data analysis programs. Incidentally, this reorganization also makes it easier to explain to Congress why we're funding what. Those four core programs are called Emerging Worlds, Solar System Workings, Habitable Worlds, and Exobiology. Even by their names, you can probably guess what they're going to be doing. Then there are what we call the DAPs, which stands for Data Analysis Programs. MDAP is an example, which is the Mars Data Analysis Program, which I have a grant to, which I'm still waiting to hear back from, even though I submitted it back in September. That aside, because of this reorganization, a lot of people found that the work that they normally would propose to several different programs fell only into one program. So instead of having, say, three due dates spread over seven months, they have the same due date for all three proposals. Most people I knew were applying for SSW, the Solar Systems Workings Program, which included any sort of comparative planetology or anything that didn't fit into the depths about specific bodies. So for example, I put in a proposal to study craters on the Moon, Mars, and Mercury and to do a comparison. Since that didn't fit into any particular DAP, that fell into solar system's workings. The due date was July 25th, with over 500 proposals submitted. 384 remained in the program because some were shuffled to other programs since this was the first year for the reorganization. The NASA program officers have stated that for this year, they're not going to do that for us. It was January, about six months later, before anyone heard about any preliminary results, and in January, all but 87 proposals were rejected. Three weeks later, 55 were accepted for an acceptance rate of 14%. That was above average of all of the programs this year. This year, because so many people applied to SSW and they had such a hard time finding reviewers, everyone this year has to submit effectively a notice of intent to propose on June 1st. Then they'll be told if they're in Group 1 or Group 2. Group 1 will have a deadline of September 10th, 2015. Group 2 will have a deadline of February 25th, 2016. It's apparently random to which group you'll be assigned, and I would expect, for example, if they have, say, two different people proposing to study craters on the Moon, Mercury, and Mars, that one will be randomly assigned to Group 1, and the other will be assigned to Group 2, so that they can reuse reviewers from one group to the next. You're told that the money, if the proposal is selected, is going to arrive one year, or approximately one year, after the deadline. This means that half the people who submit a notice that they will be proposing on June 1st of 2015 may not see any money until March of 2017, and they have, based on this year, a 14% chance of being funded. How do you plan for that? If you're working with an undergraduate or a graduate student or a postdoc, or even trying to figure out if you yourself are going to have enough money so that you're employed over the next year, the schedule for SSW means that it could be 20 months before you get any funding. It's true that this may not be a gigantic issue for a faculty member at a university. Their salaries are usually covered for at least nine months out of the year. But what about their students? Or anyone who's soft money, meaning that they have no guaranteed salary, which their salary is only what they can bring in, such as myself or Pamela, 
we're left in limbo. If you have a family to support, a mortgage, in my case, chickens, uh, or if you enjoy eating on a regular basis, as opposed to eating five-year-old chickens, uh, and you don't have savings, or a colleague who got lucky one year and has some extra money that you can work off, you may leave the field. I have several friends, again, anecdotes, who are at this point. I've filled out letters of recommendation for grade school teaching jobs for a few friends who are looking for other careers. In fact, if I hadn't been one of the 55 whose SSW was funded this past year, I would be looking for a different career now. So there is a real calendar problem and a real brain drain problem. Yes, the U.S. is still well ahead of the bulk of the rest of the world in terms of scientists, but funding situations like these do not bode well for retaining them. Now, it might not be as big an issue of everyone leaving the United States as Pamela may have implied, but it definitely is an issue for people leaving science. But there are further issues. For example, what happens if you have a grant, or someone else has a grant that you're working on, and you change institutions? If it's your grant, you have to make a very strong case to your institution to let go of the money. The grant is made to the institution, not to you. Your old institution has to decide that it doesn't want someone else there to do the work and let you take it with you. Let's say that they do that, but your new institution has a higher overhead rate, and your new institution, say, has a higher base salary. You don't have a choice about how much you get paid. That's set by HR. So not only do you necessarily, perhaps in this case, have to pay yourself more per hour, but your institution that's new is going to take more out on top of that. This is the money that they take off for things like rent or electricity or computer support and other things. So now there's less money for you. You can't spend as much time doing the work that you wanted to do, or at least you can't bill as many hours to it. But if you don't do the work, you don't complete the proposal, and that's going to ruin your chances of future funding. After all, speaking as someone who's been on a review panel, one of the things that I in particular look for is whether the person has a publication history. And if they haven't published any research in the last few years, that's a significant issue. I mean, unless, like, there were life issues um, or they were a graduate student and they just graduated. But if they've been in the field for a couple decades and they haven't gotten anything published, why should I, as a reviewer, say that NASA should give them money to just do work and then never let anyone know about it? So that's an issue. If you don't finish the work that you're going to do and get it out there, it is going to ruin your chances of future funding. Or, let's say, not that this is your grant, but that you're a co-investigator on a project and you move institutions. In order to get that money to you, the principal investigator's institution will now charge a flat fee and or a percentage fee to transfer the money to you, just to write a check meaning that there's less money for you to get salary, meaning that you can't charge, again, nearly as many hours. So in these two situations, your percentage employment has gone down because money is being taken out. You can't charge as much time. But as I said, you still have to do the work. Otherwise, it won't get done, and it will be a failure, and it will ruin your chances of getting more grants in the future. All three of these have happened to me in the last year or two. I was at the University of Colorado as a soft money researcher, and I was recently hired by the Southwest Research Institute, or SWERI, also as a soft money researcher. I was a co-I on a grant that was already at SWERI, a co-I on a grant that was at University of Colorado, and a PI on a grant that was made to CU. 
University of Colorado. Fortunately, CU transferred the grant that I was PI on with no issues. But while I was a contractor at Swery originally, I cost less than half of what I do as an employee, mostly because of overhead, meaning that I can charge less than half as much time to that grant that I was a co-I on that was already at Swery. For the University of Colorado one, I did get the money to Swery, but the University of Colorado charged a flat fee that effectively reduced the time that I could charge by 25%, and this was on top of the cut that NASA made when awarding the proposal in the first place. CU refused to waive their flat fee of over $10,000 just to write a check. And so, for these two projects, I have to work about twice as much as I can charge to make sure that the work gets done. And that's barring any unforeseen hiccups that take more time to sort out, which has happened on the CU project. Fortunately, at least for this year, I don't have the issue of this bringing me below 100% full-time. Next year it may. And this is also meaning that I have to work about 60 hours a week in order to do the original work that had been proposed. This is similar to the point that Pamela made during the interview in episode 126 about how Illinois asked people to document how much they worked, and when they started to put down the real numbers, which was far above the normal 40-hour work week, they were told that they had to bring them back down to 40 hours, at least on paper. This is probably a lot more information than you ever wanted to know, but I think that it's important to understand about the real-life impacts of budget cuts for science funding in specific programs in the U.S. and elsewhere, and then some of the practicalities of moving that money around from institution to institution. Yes, it is a choice to go into this kind of field. And the coveted faculty positions in academia don't quite have this issue except as it relates to having money to support students to bring in the next generation of research scientists. And perhaps we need to sit down and have a discussion of whether we should be producing as many research scientists in the future if we don't have enough money to support them. But when grant selection rates hover near 10%, and the realities of funding cycles and how much everything costs now but may change come into play, many people do choose to leave the field. There were two logical fallacies discussed in today's episode, but I'm going to talk about two of them in particular, anecdote and unrepresentative sample, or cherry-picking. In particular, I mentioned during the last topic about scientists having to leave the field or the U.S. due to lack of funding that I didn't have any real numbers to back it up, only anecdotes. As with most logical fallacies that skeptics use, an appeal to anecdotes as evidence for something is an informal fallacy, meaning that all because it's used, that does not necessarily mean that the conclusion is wrong, just the method of argument. In this case, I have anecdotes, so those anecdotes may be generalizable to the whole, and hence the statement may be true, but not necessarily. Which gets us to the other fallacy, the unrepresentative sample. Anecdotes are a special form of unrepresentative sample, which is perhaps better known as cherry-picking. I stated in the first segment that Mark Biltz and then John Hagee cherry-picked examples from Jewish and Israeli history to claim that bad things happened to Jews or Israel during lunar eclipse tetrads. I also said that he, to put it nicely, fudged some of these events. For example, he claimed that during the last tetrad, April 1967 to October 1968, 
there was the Israeli Six-Day War. Okay, but Israel won. By all accounts, this was not a bad thing for Israel, who not only won that war, but dramatically increased its territory. What about before that? The previous Tetrad on Jewish holidays was April of 1949 to September of 1950. The bad event pointed to for this was in May of 1948, a year before the Tetrad started. Israel was founded. Not really a bad day for Jews. Okay, but what about cherry-picking, since those two examples are more about falsely claiming bad things? The cherry-picking comes from choosing those events in the first place, and then claiming that it's those events that are representative, and they're really, really bad, and they happen on the Tetrads, so bad things happen during the Tetrads. Problem is, bad things happen all the time. Conveniently, Wikipedia has a webpage about major events in Israeli history, and Jewish history. You can classify them however you want as good or bad, but I would think that by most classifications, if you look at the list, the bad things are fairly randomly scattered throughout its 67-year history and have nothing to do with lunar eclipse seasons or with lunar eclipses happening on Jewish holidays. Same thing for Jewish history. Hence, the cherry-picking. He chose two examples and ignored everything else, and therefore... By those two examples, which aren't even good examples, he claimed that bad things happen during those times. By not showing you the other bad things that happen not during those times, he's cherry-picked. The feedback for this episode is also sort of a Q&A, and it's a story that has really been making the rounds for the last week or two, and several of you have sent it to me in Facebook, on email, on Twitter, and even smoke signals that I think probably got lost over the Rocky Mountains. We've, we've had some strong winds here today and yesterday. That is whether NASA has created a warp drive, so-called after the warp drive created by Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek. Let's start with a NASA link that several people are going to, including the IFL science site. It states, very clearly, quote, there are many absurd theories that have become reality over the years of scientific research, but for the near future, warp drive remains a dream. So, right off the bat, we have to ask how this story is being written, and what's real, and what's hype. As with anything like this that would seem to shatter several laws of physics, be skeptical. And, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Remember what happened with CERN's LHC and faster-than-light neutrinos. It turned out to be a loose cable. The second issue is that this kind of seemed like old news. NASASpaceflight.com confirmed that, and it states that really it was tests run last summer and announced in July of 2014 that were the same, and they relate to an apparatus called an EM drive. The idea is basic and conventional enough. EM microwave cavities might allow the direct conversion of electrical energy to thrust without needing any propellant. The bulk of the cost of launching any mission today is usually the fuel, and the fuel for the fuel, and the fuel for the fuel for the fuel for the fuel, and so on and so forth. However, the EM drive's basic concept, well, it kind of violates the law of conservation of momentum, meaning that if you have momentum in a system and apply no external force, that that momentum must be conserved. Even if an individual object in the system changes its momentum, that means that 
some other object in the system must change its momentum as well to compensate. Think of a billiard table, where one ball hits a stationary ball. Although both now move, the total momentum doesn't change, it's just transferred, assuming that you exclude things like friction and other stuff. So, while the concept may seem simple, right away it has a very high bar for showing whether it can work because it would violate this law of conservation of momentum. The latest news that was from the nasaspaceflight.com site is that NASA tested this setup recently, and they measured that the time for some beams of light shot into the EM drive's chamber traveled faster than light, or put another way, that the distance that they traveled was less than the distance of the device in our space. With that said, this appears to come from one website. It is not peer-reviewed, and I haven't been able to find any reports from the alleged scientists involved. All derivative sources in the last week of April have cited the nasascienceBaseflight.com website, and that's really it. This has not been proven. It has not been replicated. There could still be many sources of error, that's assuming that the story is true, and many people who've read this and are better engineering than I have pointed out that the claimed signal is still within the level of noise of the experiment. Even if this is one experiment and that this proves to be true, it must still be replicated by other independent people. After all, if it only works for one person at one point in time, then what's the use? And at this point, we don't even know if the initial reports are accurate. So, no, NASA has not created a warp drive. This next segment is a small tribute to Leonard Nimoy, who died on February 27th of 2015. Even though this was over two months ago from the time I'm recording this episode, I really didn't want to bury the tribute to him in the Comet Hale-Bopp series. The character of Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy, across a span of over five decades influenced me a lot, but I wanted to know how he influenced you as well. Frank Rosser wrote in to say, Leonard Nimoy inspired me to be skeptical with his narration of the In Search Of series. Carl Pajak said, Ditto with Frank. His forgotten work on In Search Of during my teens fostered critical thinking in my youth, which I carry on today. Nathan Lyle said, Leonard Nimoy was an influential presence in my life as far back as I can remember. I grew up on original series Star Trek, both in reruns and the movies. Watching Spock's relationship with logic and emotion evolve over the years always drew me into the story, and I'm quite certain played a formative role in my coming of age. It's likely that we live beyond our death only through our impact on the world around us and our influence on other people, and Leonard Nimoy is not a name that will soon be forgotten. The world is a little less without him, but much more because of him. James Garrison wrote, As Spock, he showed me that using logic and thinking things through was just as important as taking action, and would often help prevent tragedies. This message was the exact opposite of what I was getting in real life. In Search Of, I feel, helped hone some of my critical thinking abilities, which I began to develop by trying to emulate Spock. And, I know it's cheesy, but because of his influence on my early years, I feel that I have indeed lived long and prospered. Thank you, Mr. Nimoy, and thank you, Stuart, for letting us do this. Rick Kurgis wrote, I liked the fact that Nimoy took what should have been a dull character and made him incredibly interesting. We also were treated to an example of the undercurrent of anti-intellectualism that is prevalent in the U.S. by the way so many characters treated Spock. I'd like to think that made me a better critical thinker and maybe a bit more aware of my own prejudices. 
Hitchens, 67, wrote, When I was a kid, I experimented with purging myself of emotion and trying to be totally logical all the time, just like with the culinary discipline in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Robert Peters wrote, Growing up, no other person, book, movie, or TV show affected me more than Star Trek. The friendship between Kirk and Spock and how they viewed the world helped to define me as a person. I owe so much of who I am to Mr. Nimoy. Maybe that sounds childish, but I can think of no other better role models. Listener and podcaster Mike Bowler from MikeBowler.com sent an audio clip about how Leonard Nimoy influenced him. Hello, this is Mike Bowler from the A Skeptic's Guide to Conspiracy podcast and the Irreverent Skeptics podcast, and I thought I'd share my thoughts on the passing of Leonard Nimoy. When I first was exposed to Leonard Nimoy's work on the TV show Star Trek was at an interesting time where real space travel was becoming a reality. I can remember probably 1967, 68, right in that area. I was about, I was five or six years old. First seeing the show, thought it was a pretty neat show, though I didn't quite grasp the social commentary. It was really interesting about the idea of traveling through space, going from planet to planet, exploring strange worlds and new civilizations. And this was coinciding with the real space race and America's Apollo missions, which was on the TV all the time. I can remember just being glued to the TV watching the real space travelers. And this was also, this was at a time where I was very, getting very interested in the world of science. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not exactly sure if I was going to be destined to be anything science related. Never even had the inkling that I might be, uh, getting a day job as a electrical designer. So while Star Trek Nimoy probably played a role in stimulating my imagination, at the same time, the real science, the real engineering feats, putting a man on the moon, really uh, probably played a, a very heavy role in probably why I like to work with electricity these days. And of course, uh, you can't forget uh, Nimoy's uh, narration of the In Search Of show, which was a kind of a skeptical, it had some skepticism. It was, I won't necessarily say it was a, you know, a debunking show, but just kind of uh, throwing these weird stuff out to the world. So these were like my earliest foundations, and I eventually built upon them. And so today I do a podcast on the debunking of conspiracy theories, and I also have a still have a very strong interest in science. I mean, I've just recently purchased a new telescope. I've got microscopes. I got all sorts of that type of stuff. So it's again, it's it's one of those. I wish I could explain it as best I can, but it was just, you know, I was growing up in a time where really exciting stuff was happening in the real world. And I think uh, Nimoy added the imagination to all that. So, um, I mean, that, that would be my thought. It, and it's a shame that uh, he's no longer with us. He did really, in, I won't say he inspired, but he certainly helped me, contributed much to the my underlying fascination 
with the unknown and the unknown that is being gradually revealed by scientific discovery. For me, personally, I grew up with Star Trek The Next Generation. I was a child of the 1980s and 90s, and I didn't even know who Spock was until I was old enough to watch Star Trek IV, which my dad had to conveniently label the VHS tape as the one with the whales. By far, it was his Spock character that influenced me, and I consider him much more important and interesting than William Shatner's Captain Kirk. I think that many of Gene Roddenberry's best decisions came out of necessity by demands of others that he could not control. As an example from TNG, the entire character of Q came about from a last-minute request because Paramount was going to do a one-hour series premiere, and Gene wrote that about Farpoint Station. Then the network told him they wanted two hours. It was under that tight timeline and last-minute demand that he created the entire Q character in the Q continuum and humanity being judged by this outside, omnipotent force. Similarly, the background and manner of Spock came from the demands of the network after seeing the pilot, footage from which was later used in the original series The Menagerie, parts 1 and 2. Now I do have a story concerning... Uh, Mr. Spock, and how Leonard Nimoy, the true story of how Leonard Nimoy became the logical, unemotional Mr. Spock. And, and this story has never been printed or, or even told, to my knowledge. As many of you know, we made two pilots on Star Trek. The first pilot was turned down by the network on the basis of being too intellectual for you slobs out in the television audience. <laughs> it... Uh, it did go on then to win the International Hugo Award, but I suppose many things turned down by networks would win awards. <laughs> now, after we showed it to the network and they turned it down, but they said, you can make another pilot, they said, we'd like to have a couple of changes. One of them was this, that Mr. Spock was not the logical, emotional one. The logical, computer-minded character in this and the second-in-command of the ship was a female. They said to us at that time, we, we would like you to take out the female because we don't believe her in command of anything. And to show the intelligence behind that remark, they said, and while you're at it, get rid of the guy with the ears. <laughs> it seemed to me that we were having so many arguments at this time that I couldn't save both of them. And so I decided uh, to save the alien character. And it was at this time that we gave Mr. Spock the woman's logical, unemotional qualities and kept him on the show created the Vulcan background, and Leonard Nimoy uh, stayed on the show. I then married the woman, but obviously I could not have legally done it the other way around. <laughs> this internal struggle that then underlay the character of the dry, emotionless Vulcan half mixed with the more volatile and emotional human half that he consciously rejected was what I think made the character great and Nimoy did an amazing job portraying it. It was also what let the space opera, as Roddenberry put it, appeal to people and get a lot of Star Trek's message out there. Because Spock's character was both a part of the crew and human race, but he was still outside of it, he was able to get away with pointing out where a lot of our failings were. Roddenberry would, of course, later use this throughout much of his later work, such as with the character of Data in Next Generation. Odo, Kira, and Dax in DS9, and later writers had Kess, Neelix, and Seven of Nine in Voyager. The series that shall not be named aside, other writers have also used this concept. 
But back to Nimoy, he was definitely the original, and as Rick pointed out, it was his acting that was able to take what could have been a very dull and dry character and made him incredibly interesting, and that character influenced me as I was growing up and trying to be that logical person, regardless of the emotional response. While the man himself is obviously not the character on screen, his influence on culture is significant, and as the io9 site put it, I think that Leonard Nimoy showed us what it truly means to be human. That wraps up this topic for the 131st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net, or if you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two random internet people that you'll never meet in real life, and who themselves may not actually be real. 